Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Now, coming up on today's show, we'll talk the toy retail industry. We'll lead the show, actually, with that. We'll also talk about Amazon and a story that we previewed in last week's quick podcast. We'll discuss Stage and, more importantly, their off-price venture into Gordman's. And we'll talk about a retail experience each Leighton and I had this week in a new segment. So first, a reminder, please like us, rate us, however you find us out there, whether that be iTunes, whether that be Spotify. Also, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. So let's get down to business now. Toys R Us was in the news this week, and that was something we didn't figure upon, but they're kind of slated to rise from the dead earlier than we thought in the form of a new company with rights to the name. Now, we knew a new company by the name of True Kids had rights to the name and some of the private label merchandise back in February when they released a press release about it. But these new reports came from Bloomberg, among others, this week after an industry conference late last week. And it was kind of an informant that had been at the conference that came back to Bloomberg, came back to CNBC with some details. And the details are pretty interesting here. Yeah, they, they certainly are. And if you look through them, Trent, you can really find a lot of new ways that Toys R Us is going to try to reinvent themselves, a lot of renderings of what they picture the merchandising to be. It is going to be a smaller footprint store. We'll get into those details in just a little bit. But the rumors surround True Kids Inc., which is headed up by Richard Barry, a one-time global chief merchandising officer at Toys R Us. So speaking of merchandising, there you have it. Their plans were released much earlier this year, back in a February press release, in fact. The press release basically referenced True Kids purchasing the rights to most Toys R Us creative properties and brands. This includes their social media channels, which were noted to have around 9.5 million followers. Not bad for a retailer. However, the big news from the last seven days is that the resurrection may take place a bit earlier than anyone expected. That was the big social media push this week. You saw it on our Twitter feed if you follow us at Retail Podcast. But a lot of other people were really talking about how premature this was and how they were sort of stunned about the news coming about that they were, in fact, going to have a yet another foray into the brick-and-mortar space a little bit earlier than expected. According to conference attendees, Barry pitched a vision to bring the chain back much sooner than it was first assumed, and details disclosed regarding the brick-and-mortar presence of the new stores included 10,000 square foot locations just around the size of a five below. And honestly, Trent, that is perfect. That is what we were saying Toys R Us should be doing right before they were going bankrupt. You saw that with sort of outlet locations and smaller concept stores throughout the United States. We believe that there was, and we still do, that there is a massive demand for toys in the brick and mortar setting. It just wasn't in the big box format and they didn't really push omni-channel until it was just too late. In fact, by the way, I was at a Costa Mesa Toys R Us or a defunct Costa Mesa Toys R Us and they had been pushing omni-channel extremely hard the last eight or nine months that they were there. And again, 
so many other retailers were coming in with the similar idea that people want to pick up a lot of items that they had bought online in store and perhaps they could then push purchases in store additional purchases there at those physical stores but Toys R Us just late to the game and a lot of that had to do with of course money being tied up in long-term debt so you can only do so much as far as reinvestment if you have a liquidity crisis on your hands, and that's exactly what they had. Not all of the 10,000 square feet, by the way, would be used for merchandise in these new stores, as the new chain wants to focus more on experiential options like play areas, areas in which you can try out some of the new toys, the bigger brands that are coming aboard. This would mean, of course, less inventory to carry in the stores, especially if most of the 10,000 square feet is actually taken up with point of sale, play areas, and of course, the stock room. Speaking of that merchandise trend, part of the plan supposedly is to potentially sell some toys on a consignment basis. And this had a lot of people up in arms. We talk about the references on Twitter and Instagram about this happening, about Toys R Us coming back from the, the dead, essentially. And a lot of it had to do with this consignment model. For those not familiar with the consignment model, basically vendors do not get paid for the merchandise until it actually sells. And this is how Walmart actually works with a bunch of their vendors. But nevertheless, Toys R Us looking to have that same sort of plan implemented here. And in certain cases, vendors are actually going to be reimbursed for shrink. This would be an important caveat in toy retail, of course, where shrink due to damaged or stolen product is often pretty high. You think about all of those kids, all of that foot traffic during the holiday season would certainly make sense that that's the case. However, one could see this model not working so well with licensed toy manufacturers. We doubt the likes of Mattel, for example, would agree with such a model. Vendor issues have been at the forefront of most toy bankruptcies as vendors are hesitant to work with stores that cannot prove liquidity and hard to believe that many would jump on board in this particular case, me having just talked about their prior liquidity issues. However, MGA Entertainment was reached for comment by Bloomberg. The brands include Little Tykes and Bratz Dolls. Their CEO, Isaac Larian, said outright that they will sell the new Toys R Us inventory. And so, I think this is going to be an interesting model if this does all work out. The inventory model alone suggests that perhaps the stores will feature a number of toys from recent startups or even Trent private label brands. And you make a good point in that, you know, this consignment model, something that Walmart's been doing for years, might be a tough sell, though, when you're talking about a chain that is kind of an upstart chain or trying to restart with six brick and mortar locations. It's difficult to sell to the larger toy manufacturers, one would think. But you mentioned private label brands, and to that end, True Kids does own over 20 of Toys R Us's former private label brands, and that spans not only the Toys R Us banner, but if they wanted to make a foray into it, Babies R Us too. Some of the brick-and-mortar stores, or some of the first brick-and-mortar stores, are scheduled, at least according to sources, to open in 2019, and it would be about six in all, according to the anonymous source. The e-commerce site, one would think, would precede the stores, especially with those issues with e-commerce that a lot of people saw with the former Toys R Us, as Leighton was talking about. But details on the e-commerce site in terms of specifics weren't included. Also, details on the branding wasn't really included. Obviously, we figure Toys R Us, Jeffrey the Giraffe, will feature prominently in the branding, but we don't really know if these are going to be straight-up Toys R Us branded stores, if they're going to create kind of an offshoot of the Toys R Us brand, 
They're going to use the Toys R Us brand for some private label products, as we've seen actually in other retailers, other retailers kind of using that Toys R Us brand to sell toys in their stores through licensing agreements that kind of live on past the bankruptcy. And the other thing we don't have right now is we don't have information on where these stores might be. So if True Kids will look towards mall space or perhaps some standalone locations in busier shopping districts, you'd have to think that maybe a mall space, especially either an indoor Class A mall or an outdoor shopping mall where people are pretty frequently walking around, those might be good options. Also outlet malls, because remember, Toys R Us was pretty bullish on outlets before the bankruptcy, and you have to figure, you know, with some of the leadership most notably Mr. Barry coming over from Toys R Us, maybe they kind of pick up where they left off with those outlet mall locations as they continue to drive traffic, at least again, those Class A outlet malls. And there's a bit of mall retail space out there if Toys R Us wanted to capitalize on it, available in some A-class malls in the U.S. However, not as much mall retail space in those Class A malls as some people might be inclined to believe, especially those 10,000 square foot stores. But in terms of freestanding stores, you know, there there is some retail real estate out there. It's not hard to see them moving into a vacated mattress firm as an example. So that still has to play itself out. But, you know, if they're going to open stores by the end of 2019, we're going to know very, very quickly, probably well before the holiday season hits, what these stores are going to look like, how these stores are going to be branded, and particularly how the merchandise model will function within these stores. But the the main question remains, will this work? Is there room for another toy retailer in the United States? And part of Barry's goals here is to close in on some of the space that was left over from Toys R Us closing and the bankruptcy the first time around because Amazon and Walmart and Target, we talked about all of them picking up toy market share this last holiday season, but they didn't pick up all of the toy market share and Barry and others on his team still feel like apparently there's toy market share to go around and to be capitalized on. And you're seeing that as well from Isaac Larian. You know, we mentioned the CEO of MGA Entertainment saying that he felt basically like there was a room for a freestanding toy store or a toy specific store, the likes of which most of them have kind of gone the way of the dodo bird here. So uh, again, Main question, will this work? Well, if they can keep rent costs in check, if they don't have these massive 40 or 50,000 square foot buildings, that's going to be one positive in their favor. I don't know how much the experiential aspect is going to function in these particular stores. And the reason I worry about that, just coming from the retail background, is you always worry about shrink. So if it's a try before you buy type thing, you know how much product are you going to go through with those experiential aspects? What are some other things that you're going to do to drive people into the store specifically? I'm not super bullish on the idea. I, I think we're actually at a point where we're kind of going in the opposite direction of Colombian retail, where Leighton was talking in the show that we had last week about how when you go through stores, you go through locations in Colombia, everything is very specialized. I think we're getting further and further away from that concept, and you see so many players in the general merchandise space having success in toys, not just the ones I mentioned, but Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Family Dollar, all of them have mentioned toys as a successful segment in the past. We talked about Five Below earlier as a square foot comparison. Of course, they've had a lot of success in toys. 
I just don't see the massive amount of white space for this to work on the same scale that Toys R Us once works. I don't know that there's a 900 store footprint out there for the new Toys R Us. Maybe 50 to 100 is kind of a boutique or specialty retailer or kind of a throwback for those adults that miss Toys R Us. Maybe so. But Leighton, what's your take on that? Will this new Toys R Us work or does it have a chance of working? I think I like the concept and I like the idea that the square footage is going to be perfect basically for having a niche selection of toys and like you said earlier it's really just going to be a matter of being able to have the amount of square footage accommodate all of the needs that you need to have in terms of maybe the experiential part the point of sale systems the merchandising being able to still be a little bit flashy in certain areas but then have the room to actually have an operational business i think that's going to be a fine line that they're going to have to toe but to your earlier point about the competition currently, you look at the overall toy retail landscape, and I think that there are a lot of businesses who took advantage of Toys R Us's absence, and they really took advantage of it almost immediately. Because if you remember back to them first announcing the closing of dozens of stores, this was before they had an all-out liquidation trend. They went through, they closed certain stores, and you could already see Targets, Walmarts ramping up their toy selection almost immediately, really trying to take advantage of it. And by the way, not shying away from the marketing aspect of it. So while Toys R Us was going out of business slowly but surely, a lot of other retailers were presenting a lot bigger toy selection, especially for those bigger brands that were really heavy in the holiday season on Instagram, on Twitter, all of their feeds were just promoting the new latest and greatest toy for those kids coming that holiday season. And I think overall, Trent, this really speaks to the idea that there is obviously still a demand. There is still demand for a large toy selection. I was just in a Walmart the other day, and I have to say, I was walking the back aisle of this Walmart. It seemed like forever. It seemed as though they took up now 35% of the entire back half of the store just with toys. And so you really could tell over the last two years, that section has grown by at least 40%. Also, another retailer we only talk about really during earnings season, TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx has been doing great in terms of same store sales of 3 4%. Well, where is a lot of that coming? Guess what? Toys. You go into a normal TJ Maxx now, a conventional TJ Maxx, they have a massive toy selection, whereas just a few years ago, they had maybe one, one and a half aisles dedicated to the parents that maybe just wanted their kid to go off and get distracted for a little bit while they do their normal shopping for apparel or home goods. Now, it's a whole nother experience for that child because there's at least four or five aisles from the TJ Maxx I now live by in Orange County. So overall, I think it's going to be something that's going to play out with time. But to say that the market is diminished entirely and in perpetuity because Toys R Us has left the game, that would be a falsehood. I think overall the toy market share, maybe it's diminished overall slightly in the single digit percentage, but that really says that there is still room for at least a couple more players out there. And to answer your very first question, Trent, I think this concept, if they do it right, can be a success. And I think part of their financing model to be able to have things on consignment is to be able to have monthly free cash flow at levels that are sustainable for the long term, not get in the pickle they were in before when the private equity firm, of course, bought them out and they were highly debt leveraged. Now you're looking at a firm that's starting 
brand new. And speaking of brand, they have all of that brand equity. So even if they have an entirely different model from the historic one that we grew up with, the thousands and tens of thousands of Americans really were well acquainted with, it doesn't matter because it's that Toys R Us name. That's what got the mentions this week on Twitter. That is what got the eyeballs really focused in on, oh my gosh, is the draft coming back? So I think that brand equity is extremely important and you can't necessarily, even though a lot of accountants did, put a number on that brand. We move to a retailer that supposedly saw toy sales take off by 30% after Toys R Us closed, and that's Amazon. We got an interesting look into the retail side of Amazon earlier this spring. Jeff Bezos revealed breakdowns between third-party and first-party sales for the first time in a long time. But the reason we bring this up is because this happened in the spring. The numbers were released to shareholders in April, but researchers at eMarketer recently crunched the numbers and released them to the retail media community, including Retail Dive, as far as now projections for Amazon and Amazon's overall market share in the e-commerce marketplace. Now, taking you back to the numbers, Bezos said that the percentage of sales by third-party sellers was 58% in 2018. That was $160 billion per year. Now, because of this, eMarketer reasons that Amazon's overall share of U.S. digital commerce actually needed to be revised downward. And other analysts are saying that previous estimates of Amazon's digital share have been optimistic because, again, 58% of the business now coming through third-party sellers. And this is something we've been saying for quite some time, that Amazon benefits primarily from AWS first and foremost, then by third-party sales, then by first-party sales, or sales originated from Amazon themselves, meaning that Amazon doesn't necessarily have the market share that everyone thought they did. And we saw some of the estimates out there, and it just didn't seem to add up, knowing that a lot of Amazon's sales are coming from third-party sellers. It would be like saying eBay has a particular share of the market when really it's just a conduit for these sellers. Really, it's just a kind of a selling platform more than a retailer first and foremost. Now, the number of sales actually originating from Amazon, much lower than previously thought. The bulk of Amazon's business, as we know now, comes from serving as a marketplace like an eBay, like an Etsy. And the result, eMarketer cut their estimate of Amazon's e-commerce market share from 47% in the first quarter to now they feel like in the second quarter, based on these numbers from Bezos himself, 37.7%. And as I mentioned, we called into question these numbers beforehand, but this is a massive cut and it raised a lot of eyebrows. Now, it's not something necessarily that decimated the stock price or anything like that, but it certainly called into question this overarching concept of Amazon being the retailer to challenge all of these other retailers. Really, it's a marketplace challenging these other retailers. And also, we felt like Walmart's market share in e-commerce was quite a bit higher than numbers that were previously quoted. And indeed, Walmart's market share got revised up as a result of Amazon's market share kind of backing off. So Walmart's market share growing in relation. Now, it's not necessarily a revelation that they had any more sales, but it grows in relation to the amount of first-party sales that Amazon had. And Leighton, it's really interesting because this stands in contrast to a Wells Fargo analyst note to Retail Dive that said that traditional retailers were decelerating 
while Amazon's growth was robust. And they're talking again about that first party growth here. Yeah, it was kind of depressing when we saw some of the negativity, but apparently these analysts missed recent earnings calls from traditional retailers like Walmart and Target and only turned in two earnings calls from maybe JCPenney, which is kind of sad to say because I'm still, in full disclosure, a shareholder, even though it's sort of a dumpster fire now there at the JCPenney company. But the same analyst note suggested that Amazon accounted for 40% of retail's overall sales growth, which may be well off given their statement about traditional retailers decelerating. And you see that the largest brick and mortar retailer in the world, Walmart, is absolutely crushing it, just as an example. The funny thing is, for as much time as we spend talking about Amazon in the news, eMarketer now estimates that Amazon only accounts for just 4% of overall retail sales. And that's extremely important, Trent, because everyone, and myself included, I'm, I'm guilty of this, in that a lot of people talk about how Amazon takes nearly 50% of the online retail pie, but we still have to look that and say that online, so e-commerce sales, are still a small percentage relative to the entirety of retailing in the United States. In other words, this report helps to put in perspective the fact that Amazon is not the be-all, end-all that most shape them to be. And honestly, Trent, this is true because... If you look at Amazon and Amazon's niche markets, it's actually fairly focused in just a number of categories. And if you look at the news this week, Ulta Beauty and Sally Beauty shares actually fell on the news that Amazon was revealing a beauty store for professionals. Where have we seen this before? We're talking about Ulta Beauty here. Ulta Beauty stock is massively up over the last two or three years. Same store sales up thousands of people subscribing to the rewards program every few months absolutely killing it in almost every single metric you can look at you can't look at ulta beauty and objectively say that oh no amazon is really going to take a large piece of their revenue pie i don't believe that's the case however we talk about the media hype and we talk about it because it's a real phenomenon so for instance, they're going to have beauty store professionals now, Amazon sort of guiding people through a larger selection of beauty items on their website, maybe get a little more personalized. That really doesn't affect the market right away. We have to take years to see if those plans even come true. Amazon's Jeff Bezos will even tell you that most of what they try ends up being a failure. So why is it that people react the exact opposite. So for instance, when Whole Foods was bought up by Amazon, everyone thought that they were going to end up dominating the grocery market share and take over everything that Walmart and Target and Kroger and Albertsons have worked so so hard for so many decades at trying to get right. And by the way, extremely price competitive. You go on and look now at their market share in terms of how many groceries they're selling. All indications point to a relative stagnation at Whole Foods and them not really delivering that many more groceries than they were six months ago, let's say. So overall, Trent, I think it is kind of overblown, but I am curious to see all of the new Amazon news that comes our way. This is not to say that any new program is going to fail or anything like that. It's just to say, take it all with a grain of salt. We know that a lot of headlines nowadays are really just to get those clicks to help push through traffic. But I think overall, this is the right way to look at Amazon. It's a powerhouse in a number of areas, but it is just a powerhouse in a number of areas. And while we're talking about Amazon here, one thing we should note is they had a big announcement this week, which 
They're extending Prime Day. Last year, 36 hours. This year, two full days. So 48 hours. You see headlines like the run on Retail Wire. Did Amazon just turn up the heat on Rivals with its Prime Day announcement? Again, we've talked to people on the podcast before. We've had interview guests on that say that Amazon's Prime Day actually has a spillover effect on other e-commerce retailers. And in fact, other e-commerce retailers are benefiting from Prime Day. So if they extend it to maybe a, a full week or a month or something like that, those other e-commerce retailers also stand to benefit. Now, they might not move quite as much as Amazon typically does on their Prime Day, but at the same time, there is substantial spillover benefit. Other retailers are hosting events as well, and it becomes more about a July sales event akin to Black Friday than anything else. But again, something to watch here as Amazon's Prime Day begins to spread out. And it's interesting, you know, we talked about Target and Target down last week, much the same way that Amazon had the hashtag Prime Day fail or Prime fail a couple of years ago. It's funny, though, because for Amazon, it seemed to boil over relatively quickly. For Target, the Target down stuff seemed to get passed over relatively quickly by shoppers. So just kind of an interesting note, kind of an interesting tie-in there. But looking forward to this year's Prime Day to see if those additional 12 hours make a substantial difference or you get some shopper fatigue surrounding the Prime Day concept. Well, Trent, I usually don't talk about myself on the podcast, but I will this week and I will for the next few weeks to come at least. I wanted to tell everyone who listens to our podcast about this exciting new company that I worked with, and this had everything to do with my Columbia trip not that long ago, about two weeks ago. I was dealing with a lot of pain in my left knee and my right ankle, and I looked through a variety of treatment options here in the United States, and I came across, I'm a huge MMA fan, I came across a stem cell facility located in Medellin, Colombia, called BioAccelerator. That's right, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the global leader in stem cell therapy. They offer a state-of-the-art medical facility that, of course, I visited firsthand so I could really testify that it was beautiful. The facility was beautiful, the staff was professional, and they have the ability to treat patients with tens of millions of active adult stem cells to help them recover from injury and major medical complications that they've maybe had in the past and they're trying to recover from. Overall, Trent, such an amazing experience. BioAccelerator currently offers treatments for a variety of conditions ranging from orthopedic injury, spine and disc injury, chronic pain, and even severe autoimmune disease. It's just amazing. BioAccelerator has really anything you need for the men and women out there looking to stay in the game in terms of maybe feeling your best and keeping yourself looking young and feeling youthful. I, I can't lie, that's part of why I went as well is I'm headed into my 30s now and I am feeling older. Ask about their anti-aging and rejuvenation treatments today. Overall, I will be tracking my progress as I go through the treatment with BioAccelerator and giving you the audience updates as I heal and overcome the aforementioned injuries. So again, my left knee and right ankle, I sprained them a while ago and I think it's that that 30 year mark trend. Things just don't heal how they should. If you or someone you know suffers from a life of pain or complications due to a major medical condition or a sprain like Layton, join the likes of UFC Hall of Famer Matt Hughes, Chael Sonnen, and Chuck Liddell and many others like Layton and contact BioAccelerator. Start your path to wellness and become a BioX man or a BioX woman today at www.bioaccelerator.com 
slash the retail focus podcast. Got to type all of that in. Again, that's www.bioxcellerator.com slash the retail focus podcast and tell them Leighton sent you. So we're kicking off the second half of the podcast with a new segment. Look, we got a bunch of positive reaction, actually more than we expected, uh, regarding Leighton's trip to Columbia that he talked about on the last podcast. He talked about his experience with Colombian retail, and we had a lot of people reach out to us. Actually, wasn't expecting it. We just kind of did it as an off-the-cuff thing, but they said, hey, we'd like it if you talked a little bit more about some firsthand retail experiences in addition to you know the typical analysis that we go through on the show so not sure what we're calling this segment yet we'll come up with something fancy i'm sure but each layton and i are going to talk about a retail experience we've had over the last couple of weeks as this segment goes on both of us travel a lot to different areas of the country we visit a lot of retail stores because we're nerds like that so we'll kind of pass along as it warrants retail experience that we had firsthand that we saw was unique and we thought might be of value for the listeners so, Leighton, which retail store did you visit? I'm sure you visited a ton, obviously, but which retail store or which retail story do you have over the last couple of weeks that you experienced? Uh, certainly, I did visit a number of retail stores, not only because I'm a fan of retail, but because I have to shop to live. So, I had to buy groceries this week, and I ended up going to Kohl's as well for some new t-shirts because I usually wait a few years before I re-up on my t-shirt selection. But I will say, Trent, before I get into those stories, get into the experiences, if you will, in the traditional retail environments that I visited, overall, Trent, I did enjoy coming back to the States from Columbia. You can really tell there's a stark contrast between the retail there and the retail here, of course. So what did I do? The first thing I did, Trent, really try to refresh my brain. I rode my bicycle to Long Beach, California, where there is a massive Kmart. There is still a Kmart that is in existence in Long Beach. And by the way, there are three or four within that general vicinity, within LA County and over towards maybe Orange County that have died over the past few years. So there's empty Kmart buildings. There's some redevelopment going on within those territories. But my story here today has to do with this particular Kmart and a Kohl's that I visited here recently as well. Kmart, it was a massive location. I I still need to be able to look up the county data, but the overall square footage was just astounding. This was one of the prime Kmarts 20, 30 years ago. I spoke with several of the customers because I knew we were going to be talking about this on the podcast. So I wanted to get a little bit in depth as to the history of this particular Kmart. This Kmart was so large, Trent, they had restrooms in two separate areas of the store. They had a cafeteria. They had a massive lawn and garden center. And yes, we know that lawn and garden was usually a staple at Kmart. This section was roughly twice the size of a typical Kmart's lawn and garden section. So I know you having been employed at Kmart many, many years ago would appreciate the fact that they were really all in on their lawn garden center. And now, by the way, it's closed off. It's entirely closed off. They've even closed off part of the store because the storage is just so big, they can't merchandise it. They don't have enough merchandise to actually put on the sales floor to encompass everything. So the customers have maybe a lesser selection than they did 20, 25 years ago. But I talked to one of those local customers, like I said, and she had actually said that that Kmart is so strong in that community 
that she believes unless Kmart goes bankrupt yet again and has an entire liquidation of all remaining 300 stores or so that they have left in the United States, that that Kmart will be one of the last because she said it is a staple in the community and that she's been shopping there for as long as she has lived in that immediate area. And I thought it was interesting because not only did she tell me that it was one of her favorite locations to shop at in terms of general merchandise, she said that there's a Sears down the street. It's just interesting to me because that Kmart, of course, we talk about synergies a lot. They tried to encompass some synergies when Sears and Kmart had a coming together close to a decade ago. They did have some washers and dryers. They had a few refrigerators. They had some craftsman tools. And I just thought it odd seeing that, you know what? Well, Kmarts are gone throughout that area. Sears stores are, of course, gone throughout many of the malls where I now live in Orange County and Los Angeles County. And yet, there are these two stores that are owned now by Eddie Lampert, essentially, that are so close in proximity, yet they still carry a loyal customer following. I just found it very interesting that people are still going in and buying things from these stores. And you would also appreciate, I, I spoke about you having worked at Kmart, Trent. They have the same exact point of sale systems that they've had for close to three decades. It's just absolutely amazing. Some of the registers were in fact broken, but Let's be honest, they don't have enough people in line to really use every single register at any one point in time as it is. However, I just found it interesting. This Kmart has evolved and really changed over the past few decades. They've closed off the cafeteria now. They've closed off the pharmacy. They've closed off the lawn and garden area, but it is still thriving again in its immediate demographic. I just find it so fascinating. I love it because it's like a portal going back in time to when we were five or six years old and Kmart was on the list with the Walmarts and Targets with our parents going out shopping for groceries. They would always find sales there, those blue light specials, if we all remember those. And honestly, I just love it. If for no other reason, if let's say we put the podcast aside for a second, it's nostalgic. It's very interesting going in these locations. It's like a time capsule. Nothing has changed and you really have to, if nothing else, appreciate that for those remaining, I believe, 304 Kmart locations across the country. The second part, Trent, I'll be very brief here. It was a, a, a very short visit inside a local Kohl's. It was a two-story Kohl's, so that was interesting. And how they split up things, you would think that perhaps the men's selection would be upstairs, the women's selection downstairs, or vice versa. But a lot of what they had in terms of apparel was on the first floor, and then all the home goods and toys, we mentioned toys earlier, with Toys R Us trying to maybe get into brick and mortar by the end of the year, they ended up having toys upstairs as well. And so that actually had to do with me going in and seeing how their Amazon partnership is working out. This store actually enlarged their Amazon pickup selection to where you can go in, and I'm sure they're carrying a lot more inventory now from those customers who bought items online and are picking them up in the store. And by the way, you can also return Amazon merchandise to that Kohl's location. So we talk about square footage. It wasn't actually one of the bigger Kohl's stores. So we talk about Kohl's partnering with Aldi, partnering with Amazon, really trying to utilize the maybe the larger format stores where it's maybe a little too expensive in terms of the lease obligation or the maintenance cost and trying to shorten that cost down on a monthly basis by renting that space out or forming these partnerships with a behemoth like Amazon. And to be honest with you, 
I think it was working. It was working because all the store associates were raving about it, saying that people were coming in, buying Kohl's merchandise because they had one or two returns from an Amazon purchase a couple weeks prior. So I think in terms of that aspect, it's a win-win for both companies because Amazon is obviously getting the brand recognition and Kohl's is getting that additional foot traffic for their store. So that was interesting to me. And it's also interesting to tie my own anecdotes into their larger plans to build out that partnership in the coming years. So you're really seeing a doubling down, if you will, for both companies. Just a fascinating couple of weeks in retail for me as I go and visit these stores. By the way, for anyone who cares, I ended up buying six t-shirts at about $8 a piece there at Kohl's. But Kmart, they did not sadly get any of my business except a pack of potato chips because it was on sale. You know, and that's interesting because that Long Beach Kohl's is one of those that was first in the pilot for Kohl's in testing out those Amazon returns. Sounds like it's going well. We should mention to the folks that Leighton and I don't talk about any of this before the podcast, and maybe it would serve better to coordinate because I actually went to a Kmart myself, and that's what I wanted to talk about here. Very similar to Leighton, my Kmart was in Pueblo, Colorado, so I stayed in state. A lot of people that have listened to the podcast know I live in Colorado, but down uh, going to a hike in the Greenhorn Mountain Range, the Greenhorn Mountain area, stopped on the way at an older Kmart in Pueblo. It's one of only two Kmarts remaining in Colorado, the other being at Loveland, which is just north of the Denver area. Loveland, much more of a growing area than Pueblo is, I would say, and much more of a high-income area than Pueblo is. Still, this Kmart was reasonably busy. I'd been to this Kmart before as well. One of the things I noticed, as Leighton did, they had the garden section. This is the first time I've ever been in the Kmart that they've had the garden section completely closed off. They had only a slight selection of plants in the front of the store as you walked in. So kind of on the the doorstep of the store as you walked in. And you look at this versus 15 years ago, when you went to a Kmart, they would have a garden selection all along the front of the store wrapping into the garden center itself. And the garden center itself was oftentimes used for not only fertilizer and potting soil and that type of thing, but also shade-loving plants. And now there's not really that option. It's a very limited supply of plants that you have at Kmart. And so not necessarily the seasonal selection that you would expect. But what I was impressed with is by curtaining that area off, they were able to more thoroughly merchandise the part of the store that was just inside from the garden center because that had been basically a blank slate that looked like it needed filling. Well, they were able to fill it with some of that same garden merchandise that they had. Moreover, this allowed them to kind of expand their toy selection towards the front of the store. And in addition, through all of their renovation, I went to this Kmart probably two years ago and their electronics section was in complete disarray. They had one of those old audio video signs on the wall. They've gotten rid of that. They've updated the signage. They've updated the selection. They had about four TVs the last time I was there. This time I was there, they had about 20 televisions. So honestly, things were looking up at this Kmart. I was really impressed with the merchandising, with the fact that most of the shelves, not all of them, but most of the shelves were full, and they were able to kind of rework things in the store simply by closing off the garden center and moving some shelves around on the floor itself. So you look at kind of whether it was the bankruptcy that helped things along and they're not in that financial disarray that they once were, or maybe it's some different initiatives on the store level. Maybe it's a store management, 
but this store was kept a lot better and they actually had a locker there at the store where you could go and pick up online Kmart orders as well. So again, as Leighton mentioned, point of sale system over 30 years old. I bet my old employee number and password probably still works on those computers there. Uh, I remember my employee number being 54 at the Kmart I worked at, but still you see a company that might be moving forward just a bit. And if somehow they can keep the stores that they still have open open going into the next decade might be a good thing for Kmart. Maybe they can yet turn this around, but I was really impressed with the merchandising there at that Pueblo Kmart. Before we end this podcast, Trent, I have to ask you, what happened to the Colorado Springs Kmart? There was one last Kmart there. I believe there was three total at one point in time in Colorado Springs, but there was one when I visited about a year and a half ago. What happened? Because you said there's two remaining, but I didn't hear you say Colorado Springs. That's correct. And actually, there was a really nice one just north of Colorado Springs in a Denver suburb near Englewood, I believe. That was a fancy Kmart, that one. And that one was probably the busiest Kmart I'd been in in the last 15 years. And that was one of the ones that closed, probably because the real estate was in a prime location. It was actually, funnily enough, right next to a sports authority that also closed down. But the three in Colorado Springs, all three are currently closed. And it's odd to me because you look at them and one of them is in an area of town that was at one point highly populated, not so much anymore. It's kind of an industrial district. But the other two were in areas of the town that are higher traffic areas or were higher traffic areas when they were open, still are now. And there's actually still some Kmart real estate on a very busy highway that goes through town that's right next to a larger retail district. And what's interesting is that retail real estate, it's owned by a third-party company, so it's not owned by... Seritage growth properties like some of the other pieces of real estate are. But this company has not been able to rent out that Kmart in part because there were a few vacated grocery stores nearby that took on Planet Fitness locations and the like. So there's no fitness center to move in there. There's actually in one of the Kmarts a a fitness center moving in as we speak. They're building that out kind of now as we speak. But it's interesting. And I think, again, it kind of speaks to the fact that Kmart, when they were closing these stores, they weren't necessarily looking at low traffic locations. They weren't looking at low performing locations. They did it seemingly almost at random or to be able to utilize the real estate or because their rent was high in a particular location. So I think that's something to keep in mind as you run across old Kmart stores. But at this point, I look at old Kmart stores almost like old Pizza Huts or Burger Kings, where you get excited when you're able to point out that an old Kmart store existed somewhere because you can tell like the Penske Auto Center was there and it had been made into something else. That actually happened. I was down in Galveston, Texas, and an old Kmart store has been made into a mall there with some off-price stores. So very interesting concept. And I think once again, going forward, it'll be interesting to see where Kmart decides to keep those stores open. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead. Rach Layton and I take a look at a story we're keeping an eye on for the next week, month, or year. Mine is regarding stage as 
They continue to transfer Stage and Peebles stores over to the Gordman's Banner. They're actually doing it ahead of schedule. In fact, this week, they're having a grand opening of a number of Gordman stores throughout the country, including 25 in Ohio alone. There's also grand openings for stores in Texas and Missouri as well that are transitioning. And so the reason this is looking ahead for me is, They said in their last earnings call, Stage did, that for the year, they expected to transfer maybe about 85 locations over to Gordman stores. That would give them about 190 Gordman stores overall. And we were one of the first to kind of notice this trend about a year ago when we started seeing Gordman's pop up in smaller markets where Stage stores or goodie stores had been. And this continues to be a trend for Stage. And you just have to wonder, given the positive same-store sales of Gordman's, considering how well these outlets are doing, really what the limit is to this concept. Is this something where they could actually build out Gordman's to a thousand or more stores in some of these underserved markets? That's why I'm looking ahead. They're ahead of schedule on the transferring of 85 stores. Wouldn't surprise me that they got to 100 stores transferring over from stage to Gordman's. But really, I'm looking about a year from now. How are these Gordman stores going to be performing in relation to stage stores and can it help the company overall because right now stage's stock price is under 75 cents a share as we record this podcast that's interesting trent because if you're fans of commercial real estate just like we are you would notice that a lot of shopping centers with gordman's in them are up for sale right now and you have to scratch your head and really wonder logically are these owners whether it's maybe individual owners or reits trying to relinquish the properties because they feel like maybe the company is going to hurt going forward. And if you have a company that files bankruptcy, typically they can get out of lease obligations and not have to pay those very high or excessive penalties for trying to get out of a lease prematurely. And I think that's very interesting because some of the rates of returns on some of those buildings that are currently occupied by Gordman's are more or less in line with the market average for similar types of properties that maybe have a more healthy retailer in them, such as a Sprouts, such as maybe a Kroger location. So I think overall, that's going to be extremely interesting to see because these are larger stores. Typically, these are stores over 30 or 40,000 square feet. So these would be stores in theory that would be harder to lease up for the short term, maybe not for the long term, but for the short term, it would definitely hurt the owner of that shopping center. My looking ahead, if you're wondering, has to do with the home improvement sector. No, we're not going to talk about the trends in that particular sector, although there are some interesting pressures on the lumber industry as of late that have been hitting the news. I'm going to be talking about Home Depot. Home Depot's CEO came out over this past week on CNBC's Squawk on the Street and said that basically they're looking to pass on the cost or potential cost of tariffs on to maybe other operations, other parts of their business to try to squeak out and meet their earnings per share guidance for the full fiscal year. It's interesting because in May, Trent, Home Depot said they expected adjusted earnings per share to rise around 3% to $10 per share with a 5% increase in same-store sales and a 3% increase in revenue. Well, all of those numbers would be negatively affected, let's be honest, if tariffs had a poor effect on the company. However, I think it's actually going to be a small impact for the retailers such as Home Depot and, of course, Lowe's, their biggest competitor, because 
the majority of their items, believe it or not, are actually sourced here domestically. If you think about the lumber industry, if you think about all of the tools that are made here in North America, the majority, by the way, over 70% of its goods are actually sourced domestically. That's either through their private label branding or through third-party vendors. And I think that's extremely beneficial for a company like Home Depot that is now, by the way, doing over a billion dollars every single quarter in revenue. Just a powerhouse retailer. But any effect, any increase in the price of their goods could be very detrimental to their shareholders. And by the way, the shareholders have been experiencing a great time in terms of a relatively strong housing industry over the last decade or so, ever since the Great Recession. And just their overall contracting business is killing it. It's firing on all cylinders. Every other business is essentially trying to model after the contracting business. We talk about Ace. We talk about other smaller. True Value is another example. A lot of other smaller retailers trying to take advantage of their most common customer, which is typically the local contractor. They have to buy the most. They have to come in the most often. They have to get a number of items on a residual basis. And I think overall, you're seeing that they are, in fact, a little bit worried about tariff pressures in the near future. And I'm curious to see where exactly they're going to be hedging their costs going forward, whether it's going to be in terms of maybe cutting back wages, their their growth for wage plans, cutting back benefits. That's always been a big lever for companies such as Home Depot, trying to really pull back costs that they can control, those variable costs in the short term to mitigate the larger pressures in order so they, they can really essentially meet the guidance they laid out for shareholders over the past couple of months. And I think that's extremely important to know your business that well to say, look, if we're going to meet our goals, we're going to have to adjust in some areas in order to accommodate others. But I think long-term tariff pressures aside, the business is very healthy. The business is really hitting on all cylinders, not just for the contractor business, but for the normal people like you and me who maybe come in maybe $100 every couple months for something, some smaller project in our homes or for a set of new curtains. Everybody knows the Home Depot name. I think that business is doing just fine. Curious to see though, if they do meet their marks for the full fiscal year. That'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long next week. We'll be back at you potentially, hopefully around seven days from now, depending on our schedule. the retail focus podcast for more visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on itunes or stitcher follow us on twitter at retail podcast